ask you a question. Are you prejudiced? Are you prejudiced? I guess most of us would say, no, I'm not prejudiced, and they'd probably say that for at least two reasons. One is a kind of a cultural reason that we know in, in our kind of society, you're not meant to be critical things about things, and therefore, no, I'm not prejudiced, it's kind of within the cultural expectation. Uh, and, and better reason is because most people are pretty decent people, so they think, no, I'm not a prejudiced person, I accept all people as they come. But, you know, the, the, the natural state of human beings is prejudice, painful as that resonates to you. Um, all of us have an inbuilt um, preference for certain kinds of people, we just do. So, you, you don't even realize it, but just, you walk into a room and there'll be some people you think, oh, I like them and I'm not so sure about them, but it's just a gut instinct. Um, this week I've been, uh, I found this, Project Implicit, which is psychology psychology research conducted by some of the top universities in the States. And there's a series, a whole series of tests you can do with some rules in it. You go online and they all take about five or ten minutes and as fast as you can, you have to respond to images and words that appear on the screen. And it just, it reveals your gut response to different types of people. And uh, I've taken two or three of these and to be honest, I've been pretty upset with my response uh, because it has revealed my natural biases, things which I don't want to live by and, and wouldn't consciously choose to live by, but actually reveal how I might respond to different groups of people. I just never feel feeling brave enough and encourage you to Google Project Implicit and have a go at it yourself. It is very revealing. It can be quite shocking. And, you, you know, it can, take, it can take real conscious effort not to act on the basis of our prejudices. Um, it takes real effort to train ourselves to think differently. Well, why bother? I'm, yeah, I'm quite happy with my prejudices. Um, but we might think, actually, that's not good enough. And what, 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 might, make us, what make, might make us change? And uh, today we're going to be looking at James chapter 2. And this is a, a scripture which urges us to act differently because of what Christ has done in us. I've called it keeping it real. And this is about us Christians, those of you who are Christians, keeping it real. Is, is knowing Jesus meant to change everything? That's what we believe. It's what we, every time we get together on a Sunday, we sing songs and we pray prayers about how knowing Jesus changes everything. Well, what James chapter 2 says is, prove it. Show me. Demonstrate it. And uh, James chapter 2, which we're going to read in a moment, might make us feel uncomfortable. It's, it's a very controversial source in Scripture. Uh, and it might make us feel uncomfortable. It's, it's a bit like a spiritual implicit association test. It's, it's actually meant to make us feel uncomfortable. And I know this week I felt very uncomfortable as I've been studying James chapter 2. And I've also felt very uncomfortable as I've gone through the implicit association test. So I'm going to share my discomfort with you this morning. And hopefully, it's, it's actually quite, it's quite a sober word. Um, essentially to comfort us in what we feel like thinking about how we live and how we act. So let me read from James chapter 2. I'm going to read, read the whole chapter. It's quite a chunk. I'm going to encourage you to read it in one piece. I'm actually going to read it from, from the message interpretation. If you want to follow along in a normal Bible, you can read from page 716. And normally we would use the ESV translation and would encourage you to use that in your personal Bible reading as well, or the NIV or something like that, but a, a reliable translation speaks translates biblical languages as accurately as possible. The message doesn't do that. It's not really a translation of things. It's much more interpretation. It's one man's kind of... Uh, kind of emotional response to what the scripture is saying. And so we wouldn't normally use it for teaching if it's not 
more accurate than some of the other translations. But, but sometimes I like the messages that brings out, that bring out the emotion of what's being conveyed. And because of this kind of passage of James 2 is, I think that's helpful. So I'm going to read it from the message. You can follow along in a, in a more accurate translation if you want to. I'm going to read the whole thing. So try and listen and let God speak to you even as I read it. James writes this. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street urchin wearing rags comes and right after him, and you say to the man in the suit, sit here, sir, this is the best seat in the house, and either ignore the street urchin or say, better sit here in the back row, haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges and partial justice? Listen, dear friends, isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chose the world down and out through sifting the first atom to give full life and dignity. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. And here you are abusing this same system. Isn't it the hive mind ignorance of God? You choose the sorts of modern plans. Aren't they the ones we can form when we name Christians using the Vatican? You do well that you should plead the royal rule of a Christian. Love others as you love yourself. But if you play up to these so-called important people, you go against the rule and stand in bits of fire. You can't pick and choose these things, specializing in keeping other people from God's law and in ignoring others. The same guy who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you don't commit adultery, but go ahead and murder, do you think your non-adultery will cancel out your murder? No, you're still a murderer. Talk and act like a person who professes to judge others all but the first act of creation. But if you refuse to act kindly, you can hardly expect to be treated kindly. Kind mercy wins over harsh judgment and power. Paul, can you take a breath? Can you recognize the depth of Jesus? That's where I think it becomes worshipable. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person doesn't have it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half starved and say, Good morning, friend. Are you clothed in Christ? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And walk off without providing so much as a taste of a cup of tea. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talks about God acts and how gracious he is? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, Sounds good. You take care of the faith department. I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works department than your faith, and I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works work from faith put together and conversion. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sing thanks as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do them? Use your head. Do you suppose for a minute that you have faith in the works of Jesus and not only that of your faith in Christ? Was it our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith is separate from the works, that the works are works of faith? And Paul means us believe in this fifth point in this. Abraham believed God and was set right with God and received his righteousness. It's that pledge of believing righteousness that Abraham named the first step. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God not by a barren faith, but by faith rooted in works? The same with Rahab, the Jericho harlot. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape? 
kid. I'm not going to tell you who Trump is, but I'm going to block you if I meet this kid. I'm not enough sponsor for you to block me out, but I'm going to draw a thing. I'm going to make draw a thing for you to block me out, but I'm going to talk to this kid. And that's because they're a little hypocrites, lying to us, though. And that's the problem right there. I want to talk to that kid, but I don't really want to tell you who Trump is. But it's part of the Roman story also. That's just human nature. But what James is saying is, you think you're essentially Christian, you're not actually saved by that eternal nature, you're actually saved by Jesus. So let's look at how that inverts. I'm going to boil this down to two main points. first one is, real love. So Christ came to us out of love, but we also love others in the same way. Second point is this, we are touched. Say you're a believer, you're touched. Let's begin with real love. First point, touched. Living in the, in the world we call racially Christian, in this world, it's very easy for us to think that if we are touched, if we put our Christianity into this box, you're a believer on a Sunday, you're not touched on a Monday morning. That's a private thing, that's not what Christianity is about. And, and like everybody else, we can be terribly swayed by appearances, and um, we can be very enthusiastic about the claims and things that the world says. And the example that James uses here to illustrate that is the apostles as well. And um, a hypothetical situation we present is two different scenarios. Rich guy comes in, says to you, oh, I'm a rich guy, let's have some money, and then a homeless guy comes and stuffs his back and says, you've got too much money, let's have some bread. Special attention shown to the rich, shame shown to the poor. And these, this is these same skeptics, oh, no, we don't touch the poor. Well, I wouldn't do that, we wouldn't do that, we're much nicer than that. But aren't they really operating in the heart of the truth? We are such an appearance-driven culture. We are so celebrity obsessed. We are shamed before we have another culture in history to examine people on the basis of their appearance and what they're about and how we can justify them to a degree. Certainly in that old time, it's totally against the grin. Now, take the implicit association test. It's not there where your real intuition comes up and decides this. But I think we're just as likely to make this kind of mistake if we were James for that matter. And you can read what James writes to these Christians and say, well, they might have done that, but we wouldn't. Ah, that's just our hypocritical self-deceit. It can really get to us. We're just as likely to make a similar kind of mistake. Perhaps despite the fact that the world in which we live is a very different from the world in which these Christians lived in, uh, they lived in the Roman world, and the Roman world was not compassionate towards those who were poor. The Roman world was all about to rich people were meant to show kindness back to the poor. Now the poor were despised essentially. The honour of the powerful, the rich, and the despised were granted to the rich. And the, the thing about these Christians that James is writing to is that actually most of them would have been terribly poor themselves. This is a Bethlehem church. And it's like the Jewish Christians which had to flee Jerusalem because of persecution. They've gone to Syria and that kind of region and they are living as as refugees, aliens in a different context than they would have been displayed to all kinds of exploitation and difficulty they would have been financially poor. And, and so that this, this uh, hypothetical scenario that James gives them, a, a rich guy comes into your meeting, what do you do? 
Uh, even if you imagine now the Christian side of this body, uh, Rich has, I mean, this is great. This is the guy who can afford to spare his brain on this. All that stuff that we can't do with given money. Here's the guy. Here's the guy who lives in the north at the end of the ship. Yes. Well, they might think about their personal needs as well. Suddenly you're looking for a GP for appendix. Well, this grubby can find work, and there isn't a job club available to help them. And this a rich guy can provide work. Let's be nice to the rich guy because he might give us some work to do tomorrow. And also there's this between well, this thing overly impressed by worldly is a 
homeless guy who is making serious debts to keep for the road stage there, rotting down rotten house, living in the street. They both come in together, and everybody makes a big deal of the motor shark, but the homeless guy gets treated badly. That's the kind of situation that's playing out here in Uganda. And it's understandable, because if that was that situation, you'd want to make a fuss to the loan shark. Why? Because he's left you next to a desk, or he's providing you with your money. He's just resting you where the public money is rotting you to nothing. So what James is urging us to do here is actually an incredibly courageous victory led by love, not by the world. We shouldn't start in desperate debt to the loan shark. We actually should be in strong opposition to those who put debt on us with the loan shark. That's what shaped this country so long, this country. And that takes incredible courage to actually organize for the world this way. This fellow that Jesus uh, said at the well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. These views that other people have you should trust other people. You should love choose your neighbor. Your neighbor is whoever wants to do good. Whoever wants to destroy your soul does. And God saves us. Saves us differently on the basis of appearance. It's a bit of a conundrum, no definite command. We should be no interruption at all. We should not be passed to the shore. Or deserve to be raised to the front line of service. Let's that be the church's treatment to each of us. Treat people with love. Now, in the church, we're called to do things differently. To display real love to all our neighbors. And that is a courageous thing to do. And to demonstrate love to other people actually takes real faith and courage as well. And that's the point of the second half of the text. Come to their defense. So what is going on here? What is their real faith? James says the person who justifies by works does not have faith alone. Paul says the person is not justified by works, but through faith. Next verse on. Now, this apparent conflict is causing huge amounts of debate in the church over this text because nobody is kind of working out what's happening. It's pretty straightforward. What, what James is doing, James is urging faith in action. He's urging faith that's honest, that's consistent, that's real. And he's urging the kind of faith that we might say to others in a nice way about it. It's faith that gets things done. It's faith that is living, not dead. And of course, you can't be right and right with God without faith. But real faith is always working out in practice in a way. That's why James makes this outrageous statement. You say you believe in God, well, so do the demons. What good does it do them? The conflict of a person or a belief in God is just simply motive behind a work out of good faith. So James seems to be countering this false idea circulating amongst the church in Uganda, which is the kind of idea that says that you get up a once a week sitting in church, and that means like going to the Dutch Sunday service, getting to attend the prayer prayer rally, watching God's people dressing up in your Christmas coat and shoes, being faithful. You get like you can you can say a, you can say a sort of prayer, but but it's not meaningful. It's not 
what really struck us was faith. Faith is concerning about that which possibly so simply isn't true and so crucial that it actually ceases to be real. And you can take what is biblically true, that we're saved by faith alone, but kind of twist it into something which is simply, I want to sort of sort of burn, so I'm saved, that's fine. And they kind of worked together to precipitate that. And it's much good as if a garment man comes up to you and kind of sort of put a hand on your shoulder and says, look, there she is, walking away. And this garment man is crawling along behind you trying to kind of hold you up. And you say, look, look, what happened? Where is she? There she is. It's completely useless. The garment man dies because all you've done is say, God bless you. You haven't fed him. That's the point of justification. But you can have a kind of faith which just refers to the sense that there's no redeeming, there's no worth in it. So what we see is that really Paul and James aren't contradicting one another. Now, they're, they're twisting each other up. When Paul writes what he writes to these churches in Romans and Galatians and Ephesus, the concern that Paul has with the people in these churches is saying, I'm doing so much good stuff, and that makes me right with God. He says, no, that doesn't make you right with God. It's not your good stuff that makes you right with God. It's what God does in you and your response of faith to that. That's what really counts. But James is dealing with a different kind of problem where it's concerned with James kind of people saying, it doesn't matter what I do because at the end of the day, I do my good work. They're dealing with different concepts. Now, the problem for us is this. The problem for us is that time we gather is coming to end soon. But because we put the outcomes
Testament is still condemned. Of course, that's, that's not the point. That's not what James is trying to do. It's not how we're meant to respond. That's not how Christ uh, teaches us. He says, it's still condemned. The question is about mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy requires forgiveness. And the great good news is that mercy is not Christ. It's Christ laid down for us. Mercy then becomes the matter of the mind of God. The mind of God is full of mercy. The mind of Zion is God's second heaven. Mercy is not Christ laid down for us. It's Jesus. So rather than feeling condemned by what James says before us, what we need to do is so much of the task of this life is put out there. Let's uh, let the mind of Christ be free. Uh, let that mind of Christ be able to change us today. Let's 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 have the freedom to take a stake. Just let me love our neighbour, whoever our neighbour might be, whoever walks through the door. Just let's love them with begin by intercession. That's my now kind of style of church. I don't want to be made public in intercession. Let's have a church that do that. I don't want people to be seen and uh, as much as God can take us make that look just a given once for all. Let's make that kind of dignity required and just living as best we can, living in grace. But this week as I'm having some fresh opportunities and Believe. We know you love us. We know 